books for me, that's been the raw materials to sort of build new kinds of worlds or alternate worlds. And there's something so like wonderfully radical about reading <laughs> fiction because it, just by existing implicitly, you know, it's saying there are other ways of existing, right? There are other, there are other stories out there. Welcome to the Converge Lecture Series podcast, a co-production of 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. I'm Jake Brownell. Today on the show, we're joined by Karen Russell. A novelist and short story writer, Russell is perhaps best known for her novel Swamplandia. Set in the waterlogged wilds of South Florida, it tells the story of a family of alligator wrestlers struggling to stay afloat after a string of tragedies and bad luck threatens their roadside theme park. It's a book about grief and survival and a haunting, deeply affecting coming-of-age tale. Released in 2011, it was a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Russell's work is often surreal, filled with ghosts and ghouls, sympathetic monsters, and ordinary people whose fantasies and nightmares have become a little too real. She's published two collections of short stories, St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves and Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Since her first story was published in 2005 in The New Yorker, when she was just 23, Russell has been garnering accolades for her unique style and powerful stories. She's been named a MacArthur Fellow, a Guggenheim Fellow, a National Magazine Award winner, and received many other awards and distinctions. Russell was invited to speak in Colorado Springs as part of Converge Lecture Series, which brings writers and poets to the city to share their reflections on art, life, and the topic of moral beauty. I spoke with her in advance of that talk. Karen Russell, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thanks, Jake. It's my pleasure. So you've got a new collection of short stories that's set to come out in May called Orange World. It'll be your first collection since 2013's Vampires in the Lemon Grove. How does it feel to be on the precipice of uh, yet another book launch? Oh, I'm so happy. I can't believe, actually, that it's it's been that long. It's been sort of a, a surreal period. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling that just these, these last kind of vertiginous few years. And, um, yeah, we just got the ARCs in, so it really actually feels like a book to me now. You know, it, it made it off my desktop, and... Um, it's such a long time to sort of incubate and work on stories, and I think I really enjoy the very brief window where you get to go out into the world and go to bookstores and meet readers. You know, it's it's sort of an intense change, um, but I'm looking forward to that. And you say it's been sort of a vertiginous period. Obviously, I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling. It ha- has this kind of era, this moment, in, especially in American culture, been something that you've wanted to reflect in? your writing? Yeah, and I think it's something maybe um, even to say oh, I, I wanted to reflect it. It's almost, I think I I don't know how I would survive without books, you know, without, you know, being able to read and being able to write. It sort of ventilates <laughs> the body. And, you know, I I think, um, you know, these, these stories sort of, it, the collection evolved gradually, but I can really see now reading it as a whole, how these sort of maybe seemingly disparate stories are sort of the, the the kind of American hellscapes refracted through the lens of, of you know, weird fiction uh, in a way. And for me personally, I think one of the really disorienting things about that stretch, you know, 2013 until now, 
um, I went from sort of bouncing around all these temporary jobs and dubious sublets, you know, and I, I fell in love with a man who lived in Portland, Oregon, and we made a home here. You know, I had my son. And so, it, you know, on the one hand, I was it was the most, you know, stunning, seismic kind of personal transformation I'd ever been through in a very stable time for me, actually. And then the world came to feel um, quite unstable and uncertain. And, um, you know, I don't have to do the montage for you of what we've lived through in this past half decade. But um, I think so, so. So there's a little bit of that whiplash in the collection, I think. That's interesting, this idea of stability. I mean, you've you've talked about how your big real breakout novel, Swamplandia, you wrote that over the course of your 20s, which can be a pretty unstable period <laughs> for a lot of folks. How has that feeling of stability affected your writing? I think, I mean, all all for the good. I um, I think just having a home, it's, it's been surprising to me, just like the exoskeleton of a home, um, what a privilege that is and, and how different. I've, I live in time now. I used to do all of these kind of visiting professor jobs, which I loved, but I would kind of like you know, ride my Mary Poppins umbrella from campus to campus, and I started to feel like this weird grifter. I just had all these different parking passes on my car, you know, <laughs> and, and sort of started to seem just my CV like I was running for the law or something. It'd be like, you know, Russell has taught at, and it was like every university in America. <laughs> and I just started to feel, you know, a little bit unmoored. And so to sort of be, this is the longest I've lived anywhere since Florida. And I was happy to sort of start to see um, I knew that it was my home, I think, when, when Portland started showing up in some of these stories, you know, when the mountains kind of snuck into the, the stories and just the this different geology that I'm, I'm living in now. Um, and I will say, too, it's, maybe it's a little bit inaccurate to call it the most stable period because, you know, Jake, like, we, I was just talking with um, the very nice sound guy here who also has a two-year-old. And <laughs> that so everything on another level feels like it's changing every day to me. You know, no sooner will we get used to this one child, then he transforms overnight into a totally new child. So that's that's a little dizzying, too. <laughs> that's a, a good transition into your the title story of your forthcoming book, Orange World. It, it ran in The New Yorker this past summer, and on the surface, it kind of tells the tale of a, a new mother who makes a deal with the devil to protect her baby. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of describe the story and, and talk a little bit about how it came about. Sure, I will. Um and uh, I'll try to do it uh, in an honest way. This is a story, you know, it was, I'm usually so happy um, for anyone to read anything I've written. And I think this story, I was a little concerned that my in-laws would read it <laughs> and, and feel like, you know, I, I, was, I was clear with them that this was not direct autobiography because it tells the story of a woman who is experiencing a really frightening time in her pregnancy, who's had... Um, difficulty carrying children to term and this is you know she's hoping this will be her first live birth and um it's at sort of precisely this most vulnerable moment that a devil appears to her in like the gutter outside of her house and they make a deal basically and the deal is that she's going to go out there and nurse him every night after she nurses her son so i was thinking you know a little bit about there there's so many old fairy tales where you see <laughs> humans in desperate straits making these kinds of terrible bargains. And I also I was just looking, you know, a lot of the other stories in this collection I thought of as landscape stories. And this one, I just wanted to kind of try to map out this very extraordinary, I mean, familiar to so many people, but alien to me, territory of new motherhood. 
and all of the love and the fear that felt so extreme at that time. I think it is a, an incredible story, and it kind of gets at a lot of different aspects of your work that you know have been sort of running themes in, in various stories you've written. But of course, this idea of this new mother literally going out into the gutter and breastfeeding <laughs> a, a devil character. You know, there's this nightmarish quality, this kind of fantastical quality, but also blended with the sort of mundane experiences of going to a new mom's group and kind of talking about it with the other moms <laughs> and that kind of thing. And that blend of the sort of fantasy and, and realism is is such a big part of your work in general. How, how did you come to that kind of style? You know, I think that in some ways, I've never succeeded at writing, I think, a, a straightforward sort of realist tale. And part of that is my own reading tastes have directed me towards people like Calvino and Marquez and Angela Carter and Kelly Link later and George Saunders and, you know, um, I'm on a big Carmen Maria Machado kick now. I mean, there's so many people who are sort of telling the oldest stories we have in these fabulous new ways. And I think what the fantastical elements let you do is illuminate the ex- extremely strange dimensions of <laughs> this life on the planet, you know? So... In some ways, yeah, I mean, it's almost that the the devil character sort of is told in the same matter of fact register as, you know, this new moms group kind of getting getting inducted into this mammalian society of of new moms, <laughs> <laughs> and which was to me, you know, a, a very novel and strange experience. Um, and I guess that's and it's sort of like childbirth. You know, I was talking. We have some friends out here who are farmers, and I think I was on, you know, some lyrical kick about, you know, what a extraordinary and uncanny experience, you know, this had all been. And they sort of looked at me and they were like, it is, isn't it? But it's also the most natural thing in the world. I mean, it's the most fundamental mud of the earth uh, <laughs> event, right? It's not like Haley's Comet. And so trying to be honest about all of it, I think you you give yourself access to this other register if you can draw on fable and fairy tale and, and fantasy. There's a, a line in your in Orange World that I think kind of gets at that, where you're talking about breastfeeding and, and the child, and, and I think one of the the characters says, "It feels good to be food," <laughs> which which to me is such a it kind of speaks to that this idea of that's a, a sort of absurdist thing to say in a way, and it ha- has a sort of register of fantasy of being kind of eaten by a monster or something right. like that. But it is also so basic and fundamental to, to who we are as creatures. Right. And we're in, we have this sort of, you know, as humans, you know, this kind of, we're in this very unique and odd position where we can reflect on <laughs> the total, the, the totally absurd, you know, and, and, and miraculous, you know, dimensions of this life. I mean, we, I, I, I remember going to a, a lecture by Ecker Carrot, uh, Israeli writer uh, who I love, and he was, he was just saying, you know, when I feel like I'm in love, I do feel like I'm flying. So I just have people literally fly. It's 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 an expanded <laughs> alphabet to talk about, you know, a, a a deep emotional truth. And I I loved that answer. I have to wonder about your imagination in in everyday life as a writer who who does kind of conjure these magical creatures and and these fantasy worlds. Do you feel like you've got a a pretty hyperactive imagination? Like, are are these sort of visions coming to you throughout the day as you're eating lunch or (laughs) chatting with a friend over coffee? No, you know, I would, you know, I feel like one of the, 
you know, if you if you are a writer, it's great to be on a steady diet of poetry. I think that the poets that inspire me that that must be maybe how they live their lives, or they are thinking in these very surprising ways, making these surprising connections. I feel like having um, our son has made me a better writer in the sense that he really has come to this world without a lot of, <laughs> you know, preconceived notions, and he he sees the deep symmetries between things that I think you can start to miss as an adult. You know, he makes very surprising connections. There was a, a nun on TV and he was like, oh, a mermaid. And somehow he's not wrong. You know, I'm still try- <laughs> trying to <laughs> parse that one. But no, I, I would say one of the, the difficult things too, maybe about this new sort of steadier era for me is there's a little bit less bandwidth sometimes to to go on wild flights. I mean, I, I I felt for a while like my imagination was sort of totally co-opted by a devil, but a very boring devil that would just feed me scenarios like, oh, your son could fall down these stairs, you know? What if... <laughs> so not, not, exciting, not exciting fantasies, like the repetitive dread of a world that felt newly perilous. But I think that, for me, the best dreaming times are usually when I'm reading or right afterwards, you know, when I've sort of been fired up by somebody else's vision. How does a story start for you? I, I guess it varies. I feel like with this particular collection, I started with setting a lot of the time. And that's been true in, in other collections, too. So sometimes I won't know exactly what's going to happen in a place. But, you know, when you sort of you feel that charge or you, you have a funny deja vu, you know, when you enter a room or something's still haunting you, you know, that you saw a couple days ago. So I went, you know, when I first came out here, we went in the summertime to um, the lodge where The Shining was filmed famously, that like terrifying <laughs> panoramic shot at the opening. And the, it's built by these CCC workers. It's, it's rustic. It's very beautiful. But I mean, maybe because, of, <laughs> because I was thinking of The Shining, I found it a little bit ominous too. And there was this ski lift that was just frozen. It was mobbed by dragonflies. And I can't tell you why that seemed terrifying to me in July. <laughs> Just this, the ski lift and these, it, it felt so ghostly. It felt like this totally haunted midday apparatus. And that stayed with me. And that sort of was the beginning of this story called The Prospectors about these two grifter girls who take a ski lift up to a party in a mountain lodge, kind of in Depression era cascades. But, you know, when I saw that, I, you know, I'm not, I, I can't even really recreate where the rest of that story spun out of. But it was really that. I, I mean, I grew up in Miami, so there's something especially eerie to me about what I'm sure a lot of people here would take as totally matter of fact, the ski lift. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Doesn't it seem like a bold thing to do? Like somebody was really like, hey, let's just ride these chairs into the sky. <laughs> and when we get to the top, we'll just ski down. I don't know. It seems, it seems a little Icarus to me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure our listeners here in Colorado will. Uh, yeah, every you yeah, know. you guys take it for granted, but I'm telling you, it's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. You know, you mentioned you're from Miami, and a lot of your early work, obviously, really took place in Florida, and that was such a fruitful setting as far as characters and stories and uh, that sort of thing. You know, now you're really kind of in the other corner of the country, about as far as you could get from Florida. And your stories seem to have moved out of that realm as well. I mean, what what has it been like for you to to kind of leave Florida in some sense? You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I will say there's one story in this new book um, that's sort of set in a drowned Florida 
It's called The Gondoliers, and it's just about a, a new sort of species of mutant woman <laughs> that lives in this new Florida, kind of poling along the canals. It felt like such a wonderful homecoming to me. I mean, the, the scenario I just described, I guess, sounds a little bleak, but it was. it also felt beautiful to me to remember sort of this watery, peninsular feeling. And I miss Florida a lot. I think maybe it's a place I can return like a little <laughs> a little later on hmm. again. But I did spend so much time there in my early career. I mean, I really put down my imaginative stakes there for books and books. So it, it felt a little bit uh, like a relief, too, to, to try to start traveling to new places and different time periods. And, and um, a lot of my early work that's set in Florida features um, children and adolescents uh, as the protagonist, and that's changing too. And that's exciting to me, I think, to sort of try to take on new voices. One setting that seems to be recurring more often in, in your work, uh, you mentioned the prospectors. There's also a, a story in Vampires in the Lemon Grove proving up that's set in the sort of frontier Nebraska in the 1800s. This idea of sort of the West and the frontier people going west, you know, seeking fortune. Has that been a, a sort of inspiring motif for you? It really has. You know, you're not always aware of your own interests necessarily. And I think it's been interesting to me to sort of discover through their recurrence, like, oh, I guess I really am kind of haunted by this story. <laughs> so Swamplandia is a story about a family of alligator wrestlers in South Florida, but it also sort of weaves in and out of the past. So you hear about kind of the the settlement of Florida, which few people think of as a frontier, but it, hmm. you know, it truly is. Um, and some of the violence that's been papered over by the way we kind of, we, you know, we have this sort of misty nostalgia <laughs> for the pioneers and, you know, this truly mythic West that people, I think I grew up imagining as sort of like this, this very empty <laughs> landscape. Um, you don't think about the ways that, you know, certain policies weaponize settlers in an attempt to steal land from the Indians, you know, you know, um, from indigenous people. So maybe part of the fascination is these qualities that are real American virtues. We really think of them as the best, you know, of our, our nation's character. Kind of when a certain sort of optimism can tip into delusion. You know, in the, the story of this family in Florida, maybe would seem really disconnected from the story of <laughs> Nebraskan homesteaders. You know, but in both cases, I mean, there is sort of these perennial desires that people share to make a home, you know, to to belong somewhere, to belong to their landscape. And with Florida and also sort of the, the story that you mentioned, I mean, in both of those cases, the dreams that people showed up with weren't necessarily matched well <laughs> to the land itself. I would look at, when I was writing Swamp Landy, these amazing photographs of these poor northerners who had been duped into buying essentially swamp and they were told it was this american eden and there would be a year-round growing season and they're just standing there like scratching their heads waist you know <laughs> the water's waist high <laughs> it's like the, the farm that they purchased <laughs> which is just, i mean amazing images and it felt also i mean i was writing that book when there were all these houses were being foreclosed you know throughout the country but in florida particularly they'd have these like celebration you know or Fantasia, you know, these cruel misnomers for like these foreclosed communities. Mm -hmm. So this is a very long-winded answer, but <laughs> I think that the, the draw to the West is, you know, we're talking about fantasy and reality, 
people are really sold an incredible fantasy and then they show up and they have to really inhabit the reality. And there's always a story there for me. When you're writing, what is it that's propelling your stories? You said setting is often where, where they start, but what kind of keeps you animated through the course of, of writing, a, say, a short story? It's a great question. And I'm still, I'm still always looking for a quicker way to discover if something's going to live or not. I fall in love sometimes with conceits, and it can sometimes it can be like just sitting in a plane on the tarmac that doesn't have an engine, and you're not aware of that for a while. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're all packed and ready to go. And I think the the times that something doesn't work out, it's usually because I've decided too early what it is that I'm doing. I'll have a very definite idea like oh well this will be a metaphor and it will permit me to talk about xyz and and if i'm not surprised i think it's unfair to expect a reader to be surprised maybe um so the the stories where i feel like oh there's real momentum here it's usually because i'm not entirely certain what's going to happen next and because there's a real question for me there's a real open question there i'm not I'm not just spinning the ball, you know? I mean, I think with Orange World, uh, which we were talking about, I just really was so desperate to record some of the mystery of this time that I'd lived very recently and was was still living, you know, these these early weeks and months with our son. And I was a little bit fear-scalded still (laughs) from some things that had happened during the pregnancy. And I think, so trying to think about what's seductive about fear what's so dangerous about that seduction. I needed to cordon off a territory where I could think through some of this stuff. So it sounds like, you know, it can kind of depend as far as what, what the real engine of the storytelling is for you, whether it's more personal or, or more sort of conceit-driven, like you said. Are there times when it's really about sort of wanting to explore a certain voice or, or a character that, yeah. that you feel connected to? I, you know, here, this is a, this is from a story I wrote a long time ago. Um, it's called Haunting Olivia. But I remember <laughs> I was a much younger writer then, and I was like really excited about this totally goofy and embarrassing conceit, which was that these two boys in South Florida found, they found these goggles that they believe let them see underwater ghosts. Uh-huh. And they discovered like the whole ocean is haunted. You know, it's chock a block with ghosts. So I loved this idea. And obviously, if that's all it is, you're, no one is really in for like a 12 page story. You know, that's just sort of like ghost dad under the sea. And so so in a sly way, I think the stories that work, really, they like elude my own worst ambitions for them. I'll have just a pretty stupid idea or like a really goofy idea. And it'll be, you know, what would happen if, you know, these boys found these, these haunted goggles? And slowly, you know, like, you know, there'll be some 4 a.m., session I you know or paragraph to paragraph be like oh I didn't realize that actually these are two boys who recently lost their sister and so of course they have a very urgent and real interest in finding some kind of technology to draw her back into view you know and then so if it's so, so, so usually if it's going to work <laughs> thank god <laughs> I, I often feel like the story the stories that work are smarter than I am. And they're like, let, let's just let her pretend that's what she's doing. And then out of the corner of her, you know, my eye, something new will start to um, manifest. Is it different writing stories as a person in, in her late 30s as compared to, you know, I, I believe that story, Haunting Olivia, maybe was in your first collection, which was released when you were, what, 24? 
Um, yeah, it uh, was. You, you, can, you can say mid-30s, Jake. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I was just having this conversation with my friend who's like, yeah, I feel like, you know, late 20s, mid-30s. I was like, no, we got to update our files, man. <laughs> it's definitely late 30s. I guess my question is, you know, you really burst onto the scene as a writer, as a very young woman. How has age and, and sort of just time changed the way that you think about storytelling and, and frankly, I suppose, wisdom. Do you feel like you have more to say now or is it is it just a different kind of thing or maybe it hasn't changed at all? I definitely feel like uh, my heart's been blasted open in a way and I feel some of the edginess and, you know, kind of like wickedly non-wicked humor of your 20s. I think I've mellowed <laughs> a little <laughs> bit, to be honest, because... You feel how much every single person that you know is going through and dealing with and carrying. So I don't know if I necessarily feel wiser, but I definitely feel more. I think I feel open to a lot more. And I some of the I was talking with a poet friend and she said something interesting. You know, she said, Well, we weren't wrong and <laughs> she was talking about sort of, you know, we were in graduate school together. And it but it was almost like some of those insights you have at that time the order of operations is funny. It's almost like an echo of a knowledge that you start to viscerally embody during the decade. You know, for me, this has huh. really been, oh, people are starting to die, you know, people that that we know and, and many people are being born. And so it's this, I, th- I think the experience is more direct all of a sudden, if that makes sense. And, and that, that is changing something. And I think sort of what's interesting to me is changing a little bit too. When I was younger, I really, I think it was so in the side mirror, in the, in the rear view, like um, adolescence was like such a painful, amazing time. <laughs> and family, you know, my, my you know, by, by family of origin and my home, you know, you, you get a little bit of distance from that and you can start to reflect on it and tell the story. I think not until... I made it out of that peninsula. Could I actually tell a story about Florida? And we'll see now, I guess. I mean, I do sort of think I've been shifted on the map in a really literal way. You know, I mentioned being like inducted into the mammalian society, but it does feel that way to me. I don't, I've never felt like more of an animal in this funny way since, um, since having our son. And I'm, I'm sure that's changing something too. And just to kind of go back to that early time in your career as a writer, you know, you pretty quickly gained a lot of attention for your work. How, how did that affect you to sort of have that kind of recognition so early on in your career? I mean, I, I have been totally fortunate. I feel like luck lightning hit me. <laughs> and, but it, it, was, it was early. I think it was early to sort of have one's work be public. Uh, my first story was published in The New Yorker when I was 23. So I really, I mean, that was wow. so kind of zero to 60 I feel scary even saying that. I still feel a little bit like, oh, no, it's, you know, it'll, <laughs> I don't want to wish away the past or <laughs> shake shake the snow globe because it just it felt so unlikely, that publication, and it really opened a lot of doors for me. Um, so I, I was so grateful. I think I also felt sort of terrified then of, you know, disappointing people who had given me a vote of confidence or, you know, I'm still... Uh, still working on you know my second novel which has been a challenge so I think there were wonderful things and then in some ways you sort of internalize the voices of some critics or you know you raise raise the bar of certain expectations Um, and I think what's helped me 
always is to try to separate commercial expectations from just really wanting to become a better storyteller um, and, you know, really wanting to try to tell new kinds of stories. And in that regard, with respect to your sort of ambitions as a storyteller, do you have ambitions, you know, in terms of how your work will be received in the world, not critically, but like by readers and and how it might actually impact people who, who read the work that you write? Oh, yeah. You know what I think is really nice about being a writer? I taught this past semester, and, you know, everybody in in the class with me, they had all been readers. They all needed to read the way, you know, you need breathing air. So they know so intimately what books can mean to somebody. It's, It's not hyperbole to say books, you know, change people's lives, save people's lives. So I would not say anything so grandiose as I... But I, I think, I mean, just to be honest, yeah, you do so, you hope in some small way, maybe something you wrote will change somebody or open something up for them. And, you know, you have to, I was thinking about this because somebody asked me, well, how do you get people to buy in, readers to buy into these kind of crazy scenarios and premises? And um, I was also thinking, you know, I've been reading these Ted Chang stories, and he has wild conceits, you know, it's parrots writing letters to humans and (laughs) androids and all all kinds of really he's a fabulously inventive writer but you get the sense when you read him that he really believes in the reader he just has this faith in the reader and he is imagining you too I mean you feel those acoustics and so I guess I would I mean obviously I just want people to enjoy these stories but you hope that something you write resonates with them the way that articulated truth in a fiction has definitely changed me, you know. I'm always looking to be transformed by things that I read. Um, and you said you mentioned wisdom, which can sound like such an old-fashioned word, but definitely, right? I mean, you're, look, you're looking for other kinds of wisdom. You know, this, this does kind of lead me into this question of kind of the moral dimension of fiction and of literature and, you know, whether you do feel like there is some moral dimension to the work that you do uh, and, and something that sort of is transformative on a, on a moral level, I suppose, for a reader? It's such a scary question in a way, isn't it? Because I do think if you were to say to someone, right, if I was to say to someone, I've, this is a story that aspires to moral beauty, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> they would just, they'd be like, that's cool, <laughs> you know, have a beer and get back to me. I mean, <laughs> but I think Everybody is interested in how we should be living, right? It's just these are really human questions, sort of what does it mean to be good? How do we shelter value? What's the right relationship to the past and to the natural world, you know, and to one another? How do we override some of our (laughs) worst instincts (laughs) to access the best parts of ourselves? You know, one of the writers who I I, I loved your interview with him, and I'm so happy to and, and intimidated to be following in his footsteps. But George George Saunders is a real hero of mine. Hmm. And I think he writes profoundly moral stories, and they're also funny as hell. And in them, you know, you just see, like, the drama of consciousness a lot of the time, right? It'll be, you know, some flailing fool who <laughs> moment to moment is sort of, he'll have a really generous impulse, and then you'll watch it contract back into this self-interested <laughs> like oh no I can't, I can't do that I need my job right or I don't really want to pull that kid out of the lake it's really right. cold <laughs> or whatever <laughs> right 
it feels so universal and it's such a relief, you know, to be able to laugh at it and recognize it. Um, so this is a roundabout way of saying, you know, I would love if, if something I wrote could do something similar for readers, you know, that you could have, especially through laughter, you know, that I think fiction can sort of disarm some of our censors. It's just saying in this open palm way, this is just a lie. This is all pretend. Don't worry. The stakes are not total annihilation. Come here. Let's have a laugh. My favorite fiction, I think, works in that sly way. And some some real truth is revealed, but not. it, it doesn't feel like the story is setting out, you know, here comes another lesson. It's right. just honest about it's just honest about what it what it is to be alive. In your stories, there's often a a kind of darkness, you know, people in dark situations, you know, finding themselves like lost in some terrible circumstance. And I'm curious how you think about redemption in your stories and for your characters and sort of the impulse to want to tell a true story and to want to resolve a plot. You know, how do you think about that question of sort of salvation for your characters who do so often find themselves in these states of utter despair? Really bad jams. You know, I, I had a, a woman come up to me and she was like, just leave them alone. Stop hurting these poor people. You know, like I don't, and I hope, it, I hope it doesn't read like, you know, haha, like here, here comes the hammer. But I do, I'm really interested, I think, in some of the stories that we really love in this country, you know, the underdog story is so seductive. With Swamplandia, this novel in particular, I was so aware, you know, you really want things to work out well for these children who are quite innocent in a lot of ways. And I was just thinking about what an underdog narrative can conceal from our view, right? I mean, then nobody has to feel complicit in systems that, you know, tilt this world in such unequal directions. You know, you root for this one individual to make it out. And instead of sort of having to reckon with, oh, my goodness. And I think that the child at the center of that book, she's she's sort of been lied to her whole life. And um, part of the the painful transformation there was you know, really horrible things happened to her as a result of this kind of fiction she's been fed about her family and about the larger world. And so I think if there's redemption in that particular story, it's just, oh my goodness, but you really can start to wake up. And if you're brave, you know, you can find the leverage to start to change your own kind of (laughs) mental topography. So I, I hope, you know, I think there are glimmers of hope in everything I write and sort of the, the hope might be just that these characters start to wake up a little bit and they start to begin to imagine other kinds of lives. I read this uh, wonderful book by Avery Gordon, a sociologist called Haunting and the Sociological Imagination. And there's this quote in that book, and it, it says, um, if we can't imagine in otherwise or in elsewhere, we're living in hell, which is true, right? But I think books for me, that's been the raw materials to sort of build new kinds of worlds or alternate worlds and there's something so like wonderfully radical about reading <laughs> fiction because it just by existing implicitly you know it's saying there are other ways of existing right there are other there are other stories out there but i i do often feel like uh i you know sad <laughs> that i can't seem to <laughs> write a totally happy story <laughs> where you know it ends and everyone's drinking cocoa and you know they <laughs> had a great day a miniature <laughs> golf or something I don't know um, I, I do feel like most many of your stories that I've read at least uh, really do seem to 
to end with some some degree of hope or some you know it's it's not just bleak all the way through and and I do wonder about that <laughs> that impulse you know as readers we long for that because sometimes it's hard to find that hope in our own lives you know for if, if we are in a bleak period ourselves and I I'm curious as a writer do you feel that responsibility to the reader to to sort of offer that hope you know I, maybe it's more that you you want to be as honest as you can be about sort of how humans behave how particular psychologies behave but also just about this world we inhabit so when I read stuff that really feels like oh my god a a vortical spin into the mud (laughs) you know almost (laughs) like if my son just colors with the black crayon you can't see much and it also doesn't look like (laughs) the world you recognize and I feel similarly if something feels really sentimental or false you know or there is some kind of uplift where you you kind of feel like wait this is a story about a ghastly civil war. I probably shouldn't feel better, right? Or this is a story about the Holocaust. I don't think I should feel great after <laughs> finishing it, you know? I, so sometimes I, I think there is that, it, c- it can be an almost kind of like a Hollywood impulse or something. Mm-hmm. You don't want it to feel like a, you know, some kind of roller coaster ride and you get off and you just feel relieved to return to your own life and you don't feel kind of enlarged or troubled or vexed in any way by what you've seen, um, if that makes sense. So I do feel a responsibility. There should be some kind of utopian glimmering or, or some hope or, you know, some sense that transformation is possible, I think, because otherwise it just wouldn't feel true to me of my experience of this place. One, and this is a, to sort of change the subject a little bit, but one, one thing that I've come across in, in a number of your stories is an interest in bodies, you know, and an interest in our relationship to our bodies and folks feeling a sense of alienation in some ways from their bodies. Also the question of how bodies can kind of contain memories, trauma, that sort of thing. Yeah. Is there a, a reason that you kind of return to that theme? Or is that, do you identify that as a theme in your own work in some oh, way? Oh, definitely, definitely. Which is funny because I think in my day-to-day life, you know, you can sort of forget you have a body sometimes, you know, you (laughs) feel sort of like Krang from the Ninja Turtles or something. But I think bodies are like haunted houses, really, you know, you think about sort of (laughs) the water that they take on and the very strange way that we all live in time. It's just these overlapping ways of memory and sensation and emotion all the time, you know, all day. You mentioned sort of trauma. Trauma and haunting, I think, are very fascinating to me because that there is this way that if you, you know, you feel like, oh, I didn't, I don't know how to move into the future, you know, that the, the past is lodged so painfully inside me. And I, my father is a veteran. We There's a lot of military in my family. So sort of thinking a little bit about the way that, like, the Vietnam War for him it was such a narrow sliver of his life, you know, chronologically. And to this day, I mean, it's such a total eclipse in some ways of the present and the future still. And so seeing that as a kid, you know, um, and certain experiences of my own where you just feel um, how time can kind of get jammed by certain experiences, you know, trying to trying to use stories to... Sometimes in these really literal ways, you know, I have a story about these girls who become silkworms <laughs> in a Meiji-era Japanese silk reeling factory. And I think that story, in a way that surprised me, also ended up being about can you transmute trauma into something new? You know, is there a way 
is there anything positive about regret? You know, does it maybe return you to a threshold where you're free to choose something else? And that sounds like maybe a question that's not compatible with a story about girls that mutate into silkworms, but I'm just going to say that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I was speaking of body horror, right? I think also in that particular story, I was so interested in, you know, there's a sort of like countrywide metamorphosis in Japan where they go from this feudal society to this, like, they're, you know, they're copying Western factories. They industrialize quite rapidly. We, the black ships show up and they're sort of yoked into commerce with the West. And so in about a generation, you know, just thinking about what that does to a human's body to suddenly be kind of a slave in a factory mm. and living on that new clock and, and, and thinking of your body as a product and the violence of that kind of transformation. So, yeah, that's all to say I am really fascinated by bodies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that story is one that really came to mind for me as well, thinking about this. It seems like there's a, a sort of feminist aspect to that story in particular, you know, around women's body as a, a site of production and as a, a thing that can be sort of used in this way by the state and kind of controlled by the right. state. This question of, of sort of politics and, and feminism, you know, those kinds of things can be difficult to weave seamlessly into a narrative, but I think you succeed at, at doing that. Is that something that you consciously are thinking about when you're oh, writing I'm a story really like glad. that? I think with that one a little more so than others in some ways, because I had to do a lot of research to even feel like I could <laughs> set a story in Meiji era Japan. Um, and I, a lot of scholars will trace sort of the rising of these these kind of feminist consciousness and um, social movements to strikes in these factories, you know, all all women-led strikes. And that did seem thrilling to me, you know, the idea of this collective <laughs> revolt, uh, you know, against sort of being reconceived of as machinery, you know, your body is machinery. Well, we are nearing the end of this conversation, but I'm I'm just kind of curious. You mentioned you're working on a second novel. As you look ahead, what are some of your your goals as a writer? Oh, Jake, I have a to do list, and it's it said finished <laughs> finished second novel for years plural now. It's like <laughs> I like to put I like to everything has equal weight on the to do list. So I'll be like, well, but I did do the laundry, so <laughs> you know I'm making real progress. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, 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 I just pray to the whole pantheon that I can finish the second novel. I'm really excited about it and that, you know, there was a period where stories just felt a little more compatible with the new normal over here. But I, I will be thrilled. And I have, you know, I always have kind of stories percolating. There are always sort of new ideas and the new thing always seems more attractive to me, you know. It's like the Aruba vacation or something <laughs> <laughs> instead of just <laughs> building your house. Right. And I've been working on a, a ballet with the Ballet Collective. It's an offshoot of the New York City Ballet. And this fabulous composer, Ellis Ludwig Leon and Troy Schumacher, we're all, we're, they've collaborated with other artists in the past to do these sort of wild hybrid ballets. So I will let you know. It, that's been a real, it's been so exciting. You know, usually I'm just taking dictation from ghosts in my room. So it's been fun <laughs> to <laughs> see some other people, you know. <laughs> And I'm, I'm so jealous, you know, of, of these dancers who, you know, I could write paragraphs and paragraphs and they'll, you know, they'll do some graceful thing with their wrists and everybody's in tears somehow. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning <laughs> what's possible. <laughs> Finally, please permit me a sort of 
big question, but when you think about your legacy as a writer and what, what you hope to accomplish in that respect, it, it seems safe to say you're ensconced as, as a significant literary figure at this point. You know, you've been doing great work for a long time and I'm sure you will continue to do so. But like when you, when you think about years from now, hopefully looking back on your career, what do you hope it, it will, uh, I guess, mean to people? Oh my goodness. Um, yikes. <laughs> um, Jake, now I feel like I have to like write myself a beautiful eulogy. <laughs> that's but I, right. I, that's, it's a really good question. It's, it's, it's a good thing to be thinking about. I, there are certain writers who have made all the difference to me and they've changed in, in many ways the way that I live and what I, what I value in this life. So I really, I hope I could, some of these stories could be that for some other reader could do for readers what writers have done for me you know which is teach me how to live and also just delight me you know with the worlds that another consciousness built for me to live in that's beautiful that would be great wouldn't it if someone was like yeah i love i i like to i like to live in in these worlds i i like to come back to them (laughs) from time to time well i i certainly can can say that i do like to live in these worlds that you've created so Mission accomplished. All right. I'm going <laughs> to kick back and take it easy for the next <laughs> the several <right>. decades. <laughs> well, Karen, thank you so much for your time. It's really, really been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Oh, thanks, Jake. It was so much fun. That was my conversation with Karen Russell. Her forthcoming collection of short stories is called Orange World, set to be released in May. This podcast was produced by me, Jake Brownell, for 91.5 KRCC, in association with Converge Lecture Series. Converge is a nonprofit program bringing some of the biggest names in contemporary poetry and literature to Colorado Springs. For more information and a schedule of upcoming lectures, head to convergelectureseries.org. For more episodes of the Converge Lecture Series podcast, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'm Jake Brownell.